Coming up, what an excellent day for La Mashtu. Well, howdy folks, and welcome to Minute 7 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist, minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute begins with a face. And it ends with an embrace. Then we have some hands. We don't know whose, uh, writing down in a notebook while holding a chunk of carved stone. I would love to know what he's writing, but I couldn't find it anywhere. If anyone knows, please write in and tell us. Then we see that it's not Father Marin. It's another guy at a desk because Father Marin is actually standing up and examining all the stuff they recovered on the dig. Uh, and Keenan, you mentioned sound before, and this might be an obvious observation, but I feel like we could have been forgiven for thinking that it was Father Marin at the desk writing, and then the cut happened, time had jumped, and now Marin is standing up and looking at the artifacts, except the ticking of the clock never stops. It continues into the next cut, and that grounds us in time and tells us that all of this is happening uh, at the same time. Yeah, it's a surprisingly complicated scene when you actually start to look at it. It's it's a scene that maybe, uh, like, for instance, I didn't really re remember this scene or think about it being very interesting, but it is filled with sort of contradictions um, mm. and, and just sort of weird little mysteries like that. I agree. Take away the ticking, maybe watch it without sound. And these are these are very white hands. And we've only met one white man so far. And so we think, oh, Father Marin is sitting down writing. And oh, now he's up and he's examining stuff. And I, I just like that that subtle guiding hand. It's like, no, no, there are two people in this room and one is at the desk and one is not. There's really no reason why we should suspect that that this point of view shot of what he's writing is anybody except for Father Marin. There's Ooh, there's right. no other characters that we've been tracking like that uh, for the whole movie. And that's why I like that ticking. That ticking is something that grounds us. And so with this new shot, we see that we are in an office of sorts. This is the office of the curator of antiquities, it says in the screenplay. Uh, and Keenan, could you read for us the opening for this scene? Absolutely. A reading from the screenplay of Blatty. <laughs> <laughs> Interior room in Mosul, curator of antiquities office day. The camera is in motion, slowly panning the tagged finds of a recent archaeological dig now spread out in neat rows on a long table. The camera stops, finally at an Assyrian pendant as the curator's hand reaches into, oh, there's some kind of blur there. What yeah, do you think that's, all, I guess it's into the frame. Into the frame, yeah. Right. Lifting tag on pendant so that the writing on it can be read by him. The only sound is the soft, regular ticking of an old-fashioned pendulum clock. Close shot, ledger, containing entries of the finds. It is clearly headed in the curator's handwriting, Nineveh Excavation, Marin. On a fresh line of the entries, curator's hand now writes, pendant, Assyrian. Palace of Asurbani. Here, the hand breaks off. Close shot, Arab curator. He is seated at the same table on which rests the finds and is looking up curiously from a ledger at someone off screen. Close shot, old man. He is standing over another section of the same table. He is staring down at something on it off screen. Close shot, amulet on table. Tagged, it is the Pazuzu amulet. Now, already I'm noticing a lot of differences from what is actually on the screen. The very first shots in this scene were actually in the previous minute, and they weren't in motion, slowly panning the finds of the dig. They were still shots of those uh, stone heads that we saw. Then the clock pendulum, then the clock face. 
and then more stone heads lead us into this minute. Then we get the close shot of the curator writing. And I guess we still don't know what he's writing on the screen because that's changed too. He's not examining a pendant. He's examining a chunk of carved stone. So I assume he's not writing the same thing that was in the screenplay. Mm -hmm. um, and what I notice is that the screenplay seems to want to jump from one close shot to another without any wide shots, without any broader context of what's going on. You look at it and it's close shot, close shot, close shot, all the way up to the curator's first words. So we don't have this nice shot of the office with the three windows and the two men. This shot tells us that two men exist in this space and they are alone in this space and no one else is around. It's daytime. So we go back and we say, okay, so the clock was telling us noon, not midnight, because we see it's light outside. Uh, so much that this shot is telling us as opposed to the, uh, I don't know, sort of narrow tunnel of images and close shots uh, in the screenplay. What right. One one thing I would also point out is that the shot that we have with the um, curator against these three windows is very balanced. Whenever mm. we have Father Marin in the shot, it get, it's a little bit unbalanced. And that'll be especially clear when we cut to Father Marin's over the shoulder with him, um, or rather over his face onto the clock when it stops in a second. Um, and it's very imbalanced. So there's, there's something really nice here about having, as you say, this relationship between them. Uh -huh. And as if the curator is sort of helping Father Marin, you know, become stable or um, become maybe not relaxed, but at least not uh, losing his mind. Oh, that is really interesting. I didn't even pick that up. Um, well, you'll see when we move to the next shots, right? Father Marin's um, singles are very, um, they have a lot of strange depth to them. They, mm -hmm. uh, they're they very angled. Um, the depth goes into corners as opposed to this one, which has this nice, you know, um, symmetry that we have with a lot of Islamic architecture. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned symmetry in Islamic architecture. Do you know why there is a lot of symmetry? There's a lot of like geometrical uh, perfection. Well, you might know more. The way it's explained to me is that because we don't typically portray, say, people in in art as much in hmm. um, in Islamic symmetry, that they're trying to find uh, patterns that sort of reproduce the feeling of uh, the divine in nature rather than the divine in humanity. But hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like you have an answer that's better than that. <laughs> <laughs> My answer might be wrong as well. This is only what I've heard, but I find it really, really interesting that like in other religions where they say you shall not have any graven images, you shall not reproduce any images of the holy beings, the holy people. Um, Catholicism it catches a lot of flack for that because we have so many statues of Mary and Joseph and Jesus himself. But in Islam, a lot of the buildings and a lot of the architecture is perfectly geometrical because it is like nothing in nature. So mm. in an effort not to copy or insult the work of God, they want to make something that cannot be reproduced by nature. Mm -hmm. So uh, the buildings are all like perfectly 90 degrees and perfectly symmetrical because that sort of thing just doesn't happen in nature. Right. And we have these uh, these tiling art, uh, you know, where, where we have repeated images over and over in the tiles and the mosaics that um, that would be that the very mathematical. I really like that. I really like that idea. And again, if we say anything about any of these religions that is uninformed or we're wrong about, please, please write in and, and let us know because we want to we want to learn as we go. 
Yeah, um, and I hope that people can listen to to you know our understanding of these different cultures and um, look up you know things on their own and not just say, well, Lester and Keenan said. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, 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 no! Take that as there was the word, right? <laughs> Please don't do not do that. We are we are not the authority on any of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not. Okay, so just like the previous scene with the hammering of the blacksmiths, we have a constant rhythmic sound that we almost forget about, and it's the ticking of that clock. I really, really like that, um, taking us from the previous scene into this one. Now, Father Marin is in the foreground here. He picks up an object, and we see in the close-up, it's the St. Joseph medallion again. Uh, He turns it over, and we cut to a shot of his face, and then back to his hands, and now he's holding the Pazuzu amulet. Now, Keenan, again, maybe I'm I'm reaching here, but is there a reason we don't have a shot of him putting down the metal and picking up the amulet? This sort of flies in the face of what I just said about the ticking of the clock, sort of grounding us in real time with no jumps or cuts. Well, um, that's what I mean. I mean, this is one of these contradictions that I, I hadn't noticed that until you pointed out. I think, mm. you know, film language uh, just works that way that we just accept what we have in front of us. Like, it, it doesn't feel like a continuity error or or anything like that. We just take for granted that he's done this. But yeah, it really gives us this feeling like, um, like maybe we are not necessarily seeing what we're seeing. That actually goes into my next thought. What if he's been looking at the same thing the whole time? but his perception has changed. So one of these shots is in his mind and the other is the reality. Uh, this is literally just me, you know, playing with the shots that freaking has, has, laid out for us. Right, as you're trying to figure out how this is constructed. I mean, we, you know, the, the idea of the unreliable narrator is so common in mm. modern fiction, mm. um, you know, it, in modern novels. And that that is something that we have not really grown to accept in films, unless the film mm. explicitly says like, oh, this is because he's crazy, or right. we'll show you the scene happening twice. Um, but there's a lot of evidence in the scene that we're looking at the subjective experiences of Father Marin, and that maybe mm. we, we can't trust his experiences. Right, right. Not not just this, but then later on with the clock. Right, exactly. This reminds me of a comment I read about when ghosts appear in Shakespeare plays. And I'm thinking of three specific moments. We have the ghost of Hamlet's father. We have uh, Caesar's ghost in Julius Caesar. And we have uh, the ghost of Banquo in Macbeth. The question of whether or not the ghost that appears in the play is real, is an actual ghost, or it's only in the other character's mind. Like, for example, when Banquo shows up at Macbeth's banquet, he is the only one who sees the ghost. He is the only one who hears the ghost. So you could argue, and the director could make this choice, and the actors could make this choice, that there is no ghost, and this is a manifestation of Macbeth's guilt, and he's just kind of like losing it in front of all his friends at this party. Um, Similarly, you can say the same thing about Caesar's ghost when Caesar shows up in Brutus's tent uh, in Julius Caesar because they are alone. There is nobody else around. So this could be taken either way. However, the ghost of Hamlet's father is seen by multiple people. Hamlet's friends say, oh, Hamlet, your 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 dad is on the parapets and he's a ghost and he's being spooky. Come, come see. So we have to uh, interpret that as, okay, at least Hamlet's father's ghost is real. The other ones are up for interpretation. 
Uh, I would love to see a, a performance of Macbeth where the actors and director decided that everyone can see Banquo's ghost, but they're just not telling uh, Macbeth. Just, oh, so- God, there he is. Let's just pretend. Just, just yeah. not, not mention it. It'd be rude. It's a dinner party. Right. Keep your head down. Keep your head down. I sent out the invites and he put maybe, and now he just shows up without... Uh. <laughs> freaking ghosts um but no i could gush about shakespeare forever the whole idea of his plays being so up for interpretation as the years go on and as the um as the as the times change and, and the zeitgeist shifts um and it's still relevant today because he's writing about people and he's writing about um rage and revenge and jealousy and those things are never going to go away that's just part of the human condition and i love it um right. and sometimes when when freudianism is in vogue then that's becomes how people read shakespeare and then for a while um that's how it was just taught that that shakespeare was a freudian when that's not exactly how it works exactly exactly and oh my god we've fallen into the shakespeare trap I gotta, oh god get out of here <laughs> because i'm gonna be in here forever okay anyway so back to this scene so keenan i'm thinking either father Marin is looking at the joseph medallion but he's preoccupied with the pazuzu amulet that he just found or he's been holding pazuzu the whole time and didn't realize it at first those seem to be the two options yeah right but it must be that he's actually looking at the pazuzu amulet because while we're still on the face of this demon the curator's voice is heard and he says evil against evil Now, Keenan, I don't think this comment is explained in the movie, nor is it explained in the book, actually. Do you know what our curator friend is referring to? It's, again, one of these strange contradictions that the more you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. And Hmm. uh, luckily for us, um, if we are going to interpret this as an unreliable narrator scene, Hmm. it helps us that we don't actually see the curator saying this. It's on a close-up of the Pazuzu amulet. Um, And so as far as we know, you know, um, we don't have any visual evidence that the curator actually says it, that just in Father Marin's head. Ah, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, we we don't see his lips move. He it, It cuts to him after that sentence is spoken that is really right cool. his his lips are kind of pursed open as if he has just said something but yeah you know he you know imagine for instance if he did say evil against evil which is a batshit insane thing to say <laughs> <laughs> and then his next sentence is oh father you know and he just moves on he doesn't yeah, he yeah. doesn't say anything about that like oh that's a weird thing for me to have said i like to imagine that our curator friend just really really likes those english phrases that uh, you know <laughs> that are that are like perfectly symmetrical right um it's like oh well you know you got to fight fire with fire <laughs> You know, ah, you win some, you lose some. You know. Yeah, my my favorite old timey one is "Pigs is Pigs." You should look up this cartoon that uh, oh. that takes <laughs> that into effect called "Pigs is Pigs." It's about pigs guinea pigs, pigs versus pigs. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to check that out. Ah, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, <laughs> right. Exactly. And and yeah, the the more I've looked at this because of uh, of your notes here and and um, what you wanted to talk about, I mean, I'm more mm-hmm. and more convinced of it. And you know, it might take us by surprise that that we aren't um, reading this as reality, but mm-hmm. later on. On the movie is filled with that when we when we switch from Father Marin's perspective to Father Karras's perspective. Yes, yes. So this is actually some really interesting Pazuzu lore. And this goes back to those older uh, polytheistic religions of which Pazuzu is a part of. We have many gods and many demons. And the relationship that people have with these beings is not necessarily what you would expect or find in a religion today. And that is the idea of Uh, gods or beings that love you and whom you love back. The idea of a loving, parental, 
motherly or, or fatherly being that takes care of you and that has your best interests at heart is a new one. And, and I'm not just talking about a Judeo-Christian God, God the Father, even, even in witchcraft, Wicca, paganism, the idea of the goddess as a motherly figure exists. Uh, a motherly nurturing figure. I don't know if that was always the case. Certainly Judeo-Christian God became a more gentler, loving figure compared to what he originally was in parts of the Old Testament. But Pazuzu comes from a time when you didn't necessarily love the gods or the godlike beings who were moving and shaking the universe. Think of the Greek gods and all the shenaniganery they got up to. Zeus was an asshole. Loki from Norse religion was an asshole. Even Odin, the all-father, the all-father, was not to be trusted at times. Respected, yes. Feared, definitely. But loved, not necessarily. I mean, a lot of the t the tales from the perspective of uh, the humans treats them more like, say, landlords or um, or uh, dukes or people that they're serving. Precisely. And so we have Pazuzu. And Pazuzu, in his own religion, isn't even a god. He's a straight-up demon. They recognize him as a demon, king of the demons of the wind. He's the son of a god, Hanbi, and the brother of another demon, Humbaba, who actually appears uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So it's a big old family of, of gods and demons. Now, Kenan, Pazuzu was married. I say he was. He's a bachelor now, ladies. <laughs> but uh, he was married to the demon Lamashtu. Now, Lamashtu was, quote, the most terrible of all female demons and the daughter of the sky god Anu. Uh, and her main target was women and children, and especially new or expectant mothers. Interesting that we get a call back to uh, mothers. Um, now, again, I say Pazuzu and Lamashtu were married. They got divorced. They had a huge fight and got divorced. And now Lamashtu can't stand the sight of Pazuzu, hates his guts. So new mothers or expecting mothers would keep an amulet of Pazuzu on them in order to ward off Lamashtu and protect their children. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That's uh, that's very interesting for what our movie's about, right? Exactly. And this goes back to what I was saying. Uh, they didn't love Pazuzu. They didn't pray to him. They just knew that having him around would be beneficial in that specific way, even though he was also the bringer of uh, famine and locusts and disease via the southwest wind. It was a it was a trade off. And you see a lot of the older polytheistic religions doing this sort of thing, making deals or temporary alliances or pitting gods against each other in this way. And it's really interesting. Again, Greek mythology is full of this kind of stuff where uh, the gods and the humans are sort of playing chess with each other, sometimes using each other as the pieces, literally. Right. So um, as opposed to the religions that we're more familiar with today, which promise in just about all of them that there is some kind of perfection available to you at some point, maybe not now, but maybe in a billion lifetimes or something like that. But that's not the case in these religions. It's sort of making the best out of bad situations. Precisely. Yes. I would say like these later religions um, have humanity kind of moving towards grace, right? You've right. Maybe you've lost something or maybe you are striving for a grace, a happiness, a like a happy ending. And in the older religions, it's just like, I am going to do whatever I can to survive. I'm going to get out of the way of these giant feet stomping around and maybe I'll make friends with this God today and, you know, <laughs> so I can get what I want. But yeah, so that's what the curator is referring to. Uh, he's saying that this amulet was probably made to ward off Lamashtu, evil against evil. And in the book, he sort of says it dismissively because he's Muslim and Islam is up there with Judaism and Christianity, where you have the single loving paternal God with capital G. And we're getting sidetracked here, but uh, I guess this is as good a place as any to mention that 
the Muslim God or Allah and the Christian God and obviously the Jewish God are the same God. Allah is not a different God, despite all the anti-Muslim propaganda that was going around where they would translate everything uh, the Muslim people said in the news into English, but they would not translate the word Allah into God because they wanted to make them seem like they didn't even worship the same God. Um, right. So it becomes familiar that Allah Akbar might be something that you say, well, you're committing a terrorist act, but but they do, don't say that, oh, that's also what you say when you get a goal in soccer or when right. your child is born or any of the things that we would say it for. Precisely, precisely. Um, so I teach history and comparative religion and, and that kind of stuff, among other things. And I had to inform one of my students the other day that Allah is just another name for the big G, Yahweh, <laughs> Jehovah, Judeo-Christian God. And we forget that when we say things like Judeo-Christian, because that's only two of what we should be referring to as the Abrahamic religions, because all three religions trace their origins directly back to Abraham and uh, the covenant made between Abraham and the capital G God of Christianity, Judaism, and yes, Islam. Um, all three religions believe in uh, Messiah, though they have different opinions of uh, who it is or uh, how he will come or whether or not he has already come yet. Uh, all three religions are monotheistic. All three see the Holy Land as central to their religion, which is why you have all three converging there, which is why we have Father Marin here in Iraq, and he's friends with this Muslim curator, very close and loving friends we come to find in the book where Marin reflects that despite being unable to love his fellow humans, quote, he never found it hard to love this man. And even in this scene, the curator says he wishes Marin didn't have to leave. In the book, he says, my heart has a wish, Father, and that is that you would not go. Very beautiful. Also very intentionally mysterious, I think, because he refers to Marin only as Father. And again, we know he's a priest just because we know the movie, but he has not yet been revealed to be a priest. And so that line of father could be intentionally misleading maybe right right yeah i, I hadn't thought of that but but yeah i don't know mm -hmm. what we're supposed to think <laughs> when we're watching it for the first time precisely maybe here in the movie it's a little more obvious with father Marin looking at the you know catholic medallion and such but in the book specifically in iraq he's only the man in khakis he barely speaks and even then only in quotes twice when he says home and goodbye and the only person who addresses him at all is this curator who calls him father but let's jump back in time real quick before our friends say goodbye, because something has happened, or rather, something is no longer happening. The ticking, which has been ever-present through this whole minute, has stopped. This is while Marin is looking at the Pazuzu amulet, and right after the curator addresses him as father, we see the clock on the wall behind Marin as the pendulum stops. And suddenly, all our attention is on that clock, even more so because the sound that we had taken for granted, that soft ticking, is also gone. Marin turns, he crosses the room to examine it, and then slumps down into a chair, at which point his friend rises and asks him not to go. But to quote the book here, which doesn't quote Marin, the curator took the old man's hand with an extra firmness. My heart has a wish, father, that you would not go. His friend answered softly in terms of tea, of times. Of something to be done. No, no, I meant home. The man in khaki fixed his gaze on a speck of boiled chickpea nestled in the corner of the Arab's mouth. Yet his eyes were distant. Home, he repeated. The word had the sound of an ending. The states, the Arab curator added, instantly wondering why he had. The man in khaki looked into the dark of the other's concern. He had never found it difficult to love this man.
goodbye, he whispered, then quickly turned and stepped into the gathering gloom of the streets and a journey home whose length seemed somehow undetermined. So right, when this clock stops, it's very jarring. And now we have two singles of Father Marin in a row, as opposed to shots with the uh, curator in them. And mm -hmm. if we notice, he is not exactly um, parallel with the back wall. So we have some depth where the wall is going away from mm -hmm. him, which is just... Um, you know, a, a little bit more dynamic. And then when we have the reverse shot of him looking at the clock as he turns around, similarly, the wall is not parallel to him. And it's also a very um, rather uh, wide lens on him, very close to us. So he's a little bit distorted. Um, and then we get to the shot with um, with the curator again, and it is much more flat, parallel, much more uh, symmetrical. Yes, ah, that is that is so cool. I didn't even pick that up. Well, that's the kind of thing that, you know, directors will do and they'll work on, you know, in the subtle levels of um, of dynamism. You know, it's not necessarily meant to be like, oh, my God, I could I could see that. It's just something that you sort of feel. Hmm. I'm now tempted to look at Father Marin's position on the screen in the later shots when we see him with maybe with Karis or when he's in the room. I wonder if uh, they'll still be doing things, if they'll still be trying to say something about Father Marin or if it's just in this scene that he's uh, a bit off center. Yeah, we'll have to take a look. My my recollection of the later scenes is that he's often, you know, smaller looking than he is in, the, in mm. these shots. Uh, um, but again, to point out that, you know, we might have this unreliable narrator, like uh, <laughs> as if um, everyone can see Banquo's ghost, right? Mm -hmm. he, he's walking over to the clock and he's just stunned by it. And then the curator isn't as stunned as we are, or as Father right. Marin is. He's, it's as if he does not see the clock um, has stopped. Yes, there's there's actually no indication that the curator sees that at all or notices that at all. He doesn't say anything. And he his eye doesn't go to the clock the same way that Father Marin does or our eye does. Instead, he sees Father Marin's um, reaction and then he is just tracking Father Marin's eyes. Oh my God, you're right. He's watching Father Marin the whole time. Right. He doesn't even... He doesn't go, oh, oh God, the clock is broken. He says, what's wrong with my friend? He looks very disturbed. I didn't even pick that up. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this the, the whole clock thing could could all be in Marin's mind as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else what else it's supposed to mean. Again, now they look at because if if it is like um, as we might think of on a first blush, like oh, the demon has done this, then why is this guy not acting like a demon has just turned right. off his clock? Exactly, exactly. That's my favorite clock, and the demon's That's, broken it. These demons <laughs> coming in here, turning off. Maybe maybe it's just such a regular occurrence. It's like <laughs> ah, damn. Oh, again, I forgot to pay the demon tax, and now he's turned off my clocks again. <sighs> But okay, to go back to that that last little bit in the book, right? So um, he stepped into the gathering gloom of the streets and a journey home whose length seemed somehow undetermined, right? It's very, very like gloomy. It ends on a, on a down note. But instead of him leaving in this gloomy way in the movie, the scene in the movie ends, and also this minute ends, with the two friends embracing warmly. And I really like that. And I want to put something forth. With these minutes and with the minutes that we're going to examine later, I think there are six major themes in this story, three good and three evil, and they each have a counterpoint. Um, the first three are doubt, isolation, and despair. Look at our characters as we meet them, as we go forward. Each of them spends a lot of time alone. And that's when they are at their lowest points. That's when the doubt comes. That's when they have to wrestle with their own inner demons. Like I said, remember before, like all of them are possessed, quote unquote, possessed by something. But the countering themes to these first three, conviction, communion, hope. 
These are what our characters find in each other when they are together. And so I love that our minute ends with this man full of doubt, full of dread, embracing his friend and finding the strength therein to uh, go forth. Those are themes that I found in the book. And as I'm looking at the movie again and watching it, I'm seeing that as well. So I really like that. Um, we'll see if it holds up all throughout the movie. We have a lot of minutes to cover, but uh, but my my conviction is that it will. Okay, so that is it for this minute. Uh, Keenan, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I think we got it. All right. I think I know what compelled me this episode. Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Okay. So until next time, folks, the, the power, power of, of Shakespeare, Shakespeare compels, compels you. you. Parting is such sweet song. <laughs> <laughs>